What developments have there been in international accounting standard setting over the past month? Well, that is what we look at in this month's podcast. Welcome to the October episode of the IFRS Foundation's monthly podcast. My name is Kasia Gilewska and I'm joined by the chair of the International Accounting Standards Board, Hans Hugerwurst, and the board's vice chair, Sue Lloyd. We'll take you through the discussions the IASB had during its October board meeting, summarize the key decisions taken in relation to the projects the board is currently working on, and give you an idea of the next steps. We'll also take a quick look at some of the other developments during the past month. Uh, and perhaps we should start there. So, uh, Hans, uh, you have both recently returned from New York, where there was a meeting of the IFRS Foundation's trustees. Would you mind telling me a little bit more about those meetings? Yeah, well, actually, uh, Sue and I just returned from uh, Madrid, where uh, we had uh, important meetings with uh, the uh, monitoring board, which is the top layer of our uh, governance, a group of uh, securities regulators who oversees the trustees. And then in New York, we had a meeting with our trustees, who are our direct uh, oversight body. Uh, they made, they uh, meet about three times a year in, in places around the world, and this time we went to uh, uh, New York. So... At these meetings, we uh, update uh, the trustees uh, on technical uh, developments, uh, but it's also a forum for all of us to discuss uh, strategic uh, matters. Uh, a part of the meeting is uh, done in public. Uh, it's the due pro process oversight committee. That's one of the major roles of the trustees that they oversee whether we do our standard setter setting as ISB completely independently. But it's also very important that we have a proper due important that we have a proper due process, and that is the role of the trustees to oversee that that is happening uh, in a correct manner. And that's also the part of the meeting that is uh, broadcast live to the public. I'm not sure if it uh, people will find it the most exciting uh, stuff to, to, <laughs> to listen to, uh, but given uh, that it is so important for the acceptance of our work, we have to be as transparent as po possible. Uh, so uh, that's why we uh, broadcast it. And then what we also did, and we usually do that, and that's also the reason why we meet all over the world, is to have a meeting, a, a social gathering, a panel discussion uh, with uh, our local stakeholders uh, over there. And uh, this time we had another uh, really interesting meeting, especially focused on the investor community, even though the United States is not an IFRS adopter. Uh, they allow it for foreign companies uh, that are listed in the United States. And a lot of investors uh, are reliant on IFRS information for their investments uh, outside of the United States. So there's a, still a keen interest in the United States uh, for, uh, on, in IFRS. And that's why uh, it was um, a good move that we uh, had this meeting with um, our constituents. Uh, we had a very interesting uh, speech by Bob Posen, uh, who is a very well-known uh, academic in, uh, in the United States uh, with a lot of knowledge on uh, accounting and was remarkable how supportive he was uh, of our work. And then uh, I had a panel discussion with uh, my American uh, colleague, Russ Golden, from the FASB about uh, all the issues that we're working on. And fortunately, we're still working on similar issues uh, and, and we try to keep as uh, converged as uh, possible. So all in all, a very good meeting. 
Perfect. Thank you, Hans. With that, let's move. With that, let's move on to the October meeting of the board, which took place just after the New York events on the 22nd and the 23rd of October. So, Sue, it was a meeting with quite a heavy focus on projects linked to financial instruments. How about we start with what's going on with our eyeball project? Sure. So as people probably know, we completed the first phase of our work on IBOR right at the end of September with the publication of amendments to our existing financial instrument standards. And in that first phase of our work, we were really looking at the forward-looking hedge accounting um, requirements and the implications of the uncertainty caused by IBOR reform. We're now working on the second phase of our work on the IBOR project where we're looking at the potential accounting questions that might arise as a result of actually changing the rates and contracts as a result of the reform. So we started those technical location and measurement of making these amendments to the contracts and what the board has proposed to do is to make some amendments to IFRS 9 to make it clear that if all you're doing is changing your contract to update the rate as a result of um, the IBOR reform, and in particular you're keeping the sort of economic equivalence between your old contract and the modifications that you make, we're going to make an amendment to make it clear that that's not regarded as a substantial change to the contract, so you can continue accounting for that contract and just update the new rate as if it were just a new floating rate, which makes the accounting quite tidy. Um, we, what we did say, though, is that if people take the opportunity when their contracts are open to do more than that, so for example, if in addition to just changing the reference rate, you also adjust the credit margin, you need to look at those changes using the normal requirements and decide whether or not that's a substantial enough change to cause the old substantial enough change to cause the old instrument to be derecognized and a new instrument to be recognized. What we then did was we had another paper that then looked at what the sort of other implications for classification and measurement are of making these modifications. For example, whether there would be any effect on the assessment of the business model and those sorts of things. So for people looking at eyeball reform and contract changes, I'd really recommend that you look at that paper as well, where in the second paper we didn't propose any changes to our standards, but I think there's some useful information in there to help people think through the accounting of these changes. So in terms of what's next, uh, the next uh, topics that we'll move on to will be the hedge accounting implications of changing contracts, always a tricky technical area, and that paper I expect is going to come to the December uh, board meeting because it is uh, non-trivial. Um, so we're working on this as fast as we can. We've already given a heads up to our due process oversight committee that we're likely to come at some point in time and ask for a time and ask for a shortened comment period. So people should be reassured that we know that even phase two is urgent. Perfect. Thank you. So shall we go to the discussions about the Dynamic Risk Management Project next? Me too, I guess. Yes, please, Sue. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not going to go through the core model. I've talked about it lots in these um, podcasts. So what we were talking about at this meeting was a really quite a short and focused discussion about how we do the outreach that we said we're going to do to test whether this model that we've developed is really something that's going to be operational and that um, banks are going to think can be used to describe their risk management activities in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. So we talked about the sort of form that that um, outreach will take and the board agreed on our strategy, which is essentially in this, at this point of the project to focus just on banks and to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with banks to really dig into detail on the operational implications of the model 
Um, so we're planning to go to individual banks um, in different parts of the world with an objective of really trying to choose a group of banks that between them will enable us to understand the different environments in which the model would have to be used and to understand, for example, what the effect of the carve-out has been in Europe. And so we've got a sort of good understanding of different starting positions and what the effects might be for the banks. Once we've got that feedback, we'll decide on next steps and ultimately we'll also decide whether this is just a sort of interest rate risk management model or something broader, mm -hmm. and we'll think about implications for entities beyond banks as well. But in the first instance, because the operational aspects are so important, it's a bank-focused outreach programme. Great. Well, so we've spoken about IBOR and dynamic risk management, and now it's time for FI, so the third financial instrument-related project. And so again... <laughs> <laughs> always happy talking about financials. So last month we tentatively decided on the sort of scope and the focus of the project for the staff to do the um, initial thinking on next steps following the feedback from the discussion paper. Uh, so we decided that what we would do would be to focus on clarifying amendments to IAS 32 where there's sort of known practice issues today. So what we did this month was really talk in more detail about what topics the staff are planning to include in the scope of that work um, and, the, and the board agreed on that. So people interested in the project, you should look at the paper because it gives you a good idea of what we mean when we say clarifying amendments to IES 32. And we also uh, talked about the broad project plan and project timeline. Mm -hmm. um, thank you, Sue. So now let's move on to a non-financial instrument related project, but yet equally exciting, the management commentary. Um, so Hans, would you please tell me what happened during this month? So we have had already s uh, several discussions uh, on uh, the management commentary, uh, basically uh, guidance on how to write a narrative of the um, uh, annual report. Um, by the way, so um, in Madrid, I not only met with the monitoring board, with also with the IOSCO board, which is the association of um, securities regulators around the world. Uh, and they were also very keen on this uh, project. They thought it was very important. Um, and, and many of them have uh, local responsibility uh, for, for that. Uh, in the past few board meetings, uh, we have discussed how the qualitative characteristics in the conceptual framework are relevant to the management commentary, and we'll uh, try uh, to write some uh, guidance on these uh, issues in uh, more um, uh, 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 better understandable language uh, than the very formal language of the conceptual framework. Uh, and at this meeting, we uh, looked at the uh, enhancing qualitative characteristics in the conceptual framework, uh, which are comparability, verifiability, timeliness, and understandability. Um, and also, we uh, had a brief discussion on um, some research that the staff did on the concept of the business model. How is that understood around the world? Uh, and that would be one of the key areas that uh, the management commentary should uh, discuss. Uh, this was just an introductory introductory discussion. Uh, no decisions were made. Uh, so more decisions to come. And now let's move uh, straight into the board's project with the longest acronym BCUCC. So business combinations under common control. Uh, so Hans, uh, can you give us an update on this project? Yes, yeah, so business issues under common control are a bit different to let's say, normal mergers and acquisitions. 
because the two businesses that are being combined are owned by one and the same controlling party. Um, and our standard that deals with business combinations, IFRS 3, does not really tackle this kind of uh, business combinations. And as a result, uh, companies must refer uh, to IAS 8 to create their own accounting policies, and there is a lot of diversity in uh, practice. Uh, companies do uh, different things in these um, circumstances. Some use what's called the acquisition method, which is the method that you use for normal mergers and acquisitions. Uh, in that case, that you would use um, uh, current value as the basis. And others use what is called the predecessor, predecessor approach, which in, um, in reality is a range of different approaches and where primarily book values are used. So we want to tidy this messy picture a little bit up through our uh, BC UCC project. Uh, in our September meeting, we decided in which circumstances you would refer to current value and in which um, circumstances you would have to go to a predecessor uh, approach. Uh, and our discussion this month focused on the predecessor approach, approach and how it should be applied because in reality there are also different kinds of predecessor approaches. And the main decision that we took is when applying a predecessor approach, companies should use the predecessor carrying amounts at a transferred company level. Um, so uh, we uh, plan to complete our discussion of how a predecessor approach should be applied in the next meeting. Great, thank you. Um, so now uh, let's talk about um, another project uh, which amendments are coming forth, um, the IAS-8. Um, so, Sue, so, uh, would you please um, tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So this is the topic of <clears throat> the difference between accounting policies and accounting estimates, which sounds terribly geeky, I know. Utterly fantastic yeah, and fascinating. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> why I'm talking about it, not Hans, probably. Um, but it's a really important distinction, not least because if you've got a change in accounting estimate, typically that's accounted for prospectively, whereas if you have a change in accounting policy, typically that's accounted for retrospectively. So which category in matters a lot. Um, and we published an exposure draft trying to make a, a clarification of the difference between those two things back in 2017, so it's been going on for a while. And this month the staff provided us with their recommendations, and their recommendation was to revise the definition of accounting estimates, in particular to, um, to uh, make it clear that an accounting estimate is where there's measurement uncertainty, using that concept from the conceptual framework, and not to amend the definition of accounting policies, but to make it clear that if something was a change in accounting estimate, then it's not a change in accounting policy. Uh, so to make it more clear what the interaction is between those two things. So the board agreed with those staff recommendations and they also, uh, we gave the staff the green light to move forward to finalise these amendments to mm -hmm. ISA. But we do still need to talk about the effective date and the transition arrangements. Uh, great, thank you. Um, and so um, the board always discusses various implementations matters as part of um, its monthly meetings. Uh, so Sue, can you please give a brief summary of a couple of the implementation matters discussed this month? Sure. So there's two projects that I'll talk about briefly under that sort of heading. So the first one is some amendments that we're planning to make to IES 16, the Property, Plant and Equipment Standard. 
and we finalised the proposed um, amendments to IS 16 that have been previously published in an exposure draft with some modification. So these amendments are going to prohibit a company from deducting from the cost of its items of property, plant and equipment any proceeds it gets from selling items that it um, produces while it's still in the process of sort of completing the asset. The, the words we use are bringing it into the location and condition necessary for its operation. <laughs> uh, so if you're selling while you're sort of testing, for example, that, that has to go through um, profit or loss as revenue as normal. And we also decided on the transition and effective dates for the for that project, so it's good to get that um, sort of wrapped up. The second thing is the work that we've been doing on some narrow scope amendments to IES 37. So in September, we decided to proceed with making a narrow scope amendment to the standard to clarify which costs a company should include to determine whether a contract's onerous or not. Um, and at this meeting, um, and at this meeting, we decided to. Um, replace the examples that we proposed in the exposure draft, which sort of illustrated the, um, the concepts in the exposure draft, and rather to focus on improving the actual text in the requirements to clarify which costs are considered to relate directly to the contract. Um, and we also decided not to expand the scope of the project. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So Hans, uh, let's finish off with a brief summary of um, the IFRS for SMEs project. So uh, would you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, so we are uh, working on a consultation document uh, that has to do with the review of the IFRS for SMEs. Uh, it will be a request for information. Uh, IFRS for SMEs has not been adjusted for a long time. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, IFRS has developed. Uh, so we uh, want to ask our uh, stakeholders to what extent they, uh, they think that aligned uh, basically with the newest developments in uh, IFRS. Uh, and in previous meetings uh, we have uh, discussed whether and how the uh, requirements of the IFRS, IFRS for SMEs should be aligned with IFRS 3, IFRS 10 and IFRS 13, among others. And this month uh, we discussed possible alignment with IFRS 11 joint arrangements. Uh, so our uh, discussions are still ongoing. Uh, we uh, expect to publish the consultation document dur during the first quarter of next year. So mm -hmm. not too long from now. Great. Uh, whew, sorry, that was a rather long summary of the October meeting. Uh, thank you both for that. Uh, if you have any feedback on the podcast, please email communications at ifres.org. Um, the full summary of the board's discussions and decisions uh, at the October meeting can be found at the IASB, up IASB update on the IFRS Foundation's website. Until next time, and thank you for listening.